Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Barry Motos. We are extra excited that you're joining us today. That's right, because this week is our one year anniversary. It's hard to believe that it's been a year. Yeah, where did that year go? I don't know. But we do want to give a big thank you out to everybody that has listened and keeps coming back to listen. Yeah, we are really hoping that we can do this for many more years to come. And a way for us to be able to do that would be to have you give us a rate or a review on Apple Podcasts. That's what we would love. (laughs) An honest review of our podcast because that will help us to grow and to be able to continue doing this. It means the world to us when we hear your comments and feedback. Yeah, even on our social medias when you comment on our cases, we love it. So thank you. We do appreciate you taking the time to do so. We totally do. And for our birthday or our anniversary, we also have a gift coming for our listeners as well. Sometime in the fall, we're going to be doing another giveaway and it's going to be an exciting one. So stay tuned for that. It is going to be so fun. And because it is our anniversary, Melissa has an extra special case for us today. I do. When trying to decide what case to cover for our one year, I thought I would share the first case that really intrigued me when I was younger. The case that got you into true crime? Yeah. Despite the very gruesome nature of the crime, I was fascinated by how scientists had performed an autopsy to reveal the truth. Scientists are the bomb. They are. And I totally wanted to be one growing up. But this began a lifelong captivation with criminal sciences. And I am sure my grade school and high school teachers were thoroughly disturbed by some of the topics I chose for independent study projects. When given the chance to write a report on how physics was used in the real world, I chose to write about bloodstain analysis. I dissected the research done on the JFK case to show how physics had given away the location of the shooter. In social, I wrote about the debate of nurture versus nature in serial killers. And in biology, well, you don't even want to know. Is that when you volunteered at a slaughterhouse? Yes. Oh, gross. I don't know if I would want to take it that far. (laughs) Well, I had to prove to my mom that I would in fact be able to handle the blood and gore of death when she doubted my ability to pursue a career in forensic pathology. Okay, that makes sense. All because of a newspaper article I had read as a kid. Which is about this case. Yeah. That's why you're my partner in crime. (laughs) That's right. And our listeners can attest that not everybody shares this love of true crime and forensics and all of this stuff that we love. Nobody wants to talk about it all the time like we do. Right. (laughs) And people are always shocked to hear that I actually listen to true crime podcasts or watch YouTube creators talk about true crime in my off time. Yeah. It will be a gruesome one today. So I want to put out a warning that we'll be talking about the death of a baby. Oh, well, no wonder that one stuck with you then, because that is so horrific. Yeah, it was a memorable case, but it's not one that I think a lot of people will know. I'm assuming it's a Canadian case? It isn't. It isn't? No. Oh, wow. So it's not something you read about in your local paper? Nope. Jason James Radke was born in Chase, Nebraska on the 7th of March, 1971. Apart from an overly close relationship with his grandmother, there isn't much that we know about his childhood. His father was a local auto mechanic, and Jason would spend his whole childhood in Nebraska. 
After high school, he moved to the small farming community of Stamford, just outside of Alma, Nebraska. There, he worked at the local dairy barn selling ice cream and began dating Linda Boyce, a 19-year-old who was also employed at the same dairy barn. Oh, that is super cute. So if it's reported that he was mostly close with his grandmother, then does that indicate possibly that he had a rough relationship with his parents? I'm not sure. I couldn't find any information other than his dad was a mechanic. I couldn't find any information on his mother. So it may have been that his mother wasn't in the picture and that's why he had a close relationship with his grandmother. Okay. Maybe Mm. grandma stepped in to fill that void. Not really sure. But the relationship between him and his grandmother was noted as being close. Okay. Jason wasn't put off by the fact that Linda had an infant daughter, Kaylin, from her previous relationship. Even at 19, it didn't put a damper in his plans for the future in the least. Well, that's great because a lot of guys would run the other way. Mm -hmm. He had big plans for the future. He was going to pursue a career in raising and training dogs so that they could be guard dogs or work as police dogs. Oh, we've talked a lot about police dogs. Mm -hmm. And how incredible they are and Mm -hmm. how well trained they are. Yeah. Yeah. So Jason was going to pursue a career in raising and training dogs, or at least that's what he had told several of the small town sheriffs. He was a known acquaintance of the local law enforcement, sporting a rap sheet of misdemeanors that included petty theft and simple assaults. Oh, no. But he was going to turn it all around by training their dogs. Well, that's a legitimate business. Mm -hmm. And he was an animal lover. And maybe that would help him be on the right track if he's working closely with the officers. Yeah, he's working on the right side of the law instead of the wrong side, right? Yeah, good for him. But somehow I have a feeling that's not how this is going to end. No, he doesn't end up on the right side of the law in this one. In the summer of 1990, at the age of 19, he traveled to Warren, Maine to purchase a three-year-old pedigree German shepherd named Apoll. Which, to me, was a weird name for a dog, and I kept wanting to correct it to Apollo, but in the majority of newspaper articles on the case, they spelled the dog's name without an O at the end, and unfortunately, none of the court documents had the name of the dog included. Yeah, that is definitely a unique name. Regardless of his name, Jason had purchased the dog for $3,500 from Suki Kennels. Jason had told Jerry Sukver that his purpose for buying the dog was to start his career as a dog trainer. I'm surprised at three. I would assume that that training would start more in the puppy years. Yeah, it is shocking. But this dog had been already trained. Okay. But 3500 in 1990 is almost $8,000 today. Whoa. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about the conversion. That's Mm -hmm. true. Even with an odd name, that is some dog to spend $8,000 on a dog. Yeah. At that price, hopefully he was not a problem dog. (laughs) He should have come with its own butler for that price. Does he do the dishes? Right. I was just shocked. Maybe people spend that on dogs every day, but I was like, uh, what? Yeah, that's wild. So just before August in 1990, the couple moved to Queens, New York to be closer to the Canine Behavioral Center in Maspeth to pursue Jason's dream of becoming a dog trainer. Jason and Apol began training at the center on August 1st, and training went well for both of them, according to the school manager. Just a few days after starting the academy on August 4th, Linda gave birth to Jason and her's first son in Booth Memorial Hospital. So after settling into a new home in Queens, New York, and starting schooling, Jason was also starting a new role as a father. The couple brought home their seven-pound bouncing baby boy, Anthony James Radke, to their apartment on 1634 Stephen Street in Bridgewood, Queens. The small upper floor apartment was part of a two-family home and was now pretty crowded with Jason, Linda, and two children under one. Kaylin was only 11 months at the time that they brought home Anthony. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. They had their hands full. Yes. Not to mention a 90-pound German Shepherd living in their house. Oh, 
That's a lot going on. It is a lot. <laughs> That's almost like having twins mm-hmm. 11 months apart. Could you imagine? And both Linda and Jason at the time are only 19 years old. Holy cow. There's a lot of things going on for them. For sure. Mm-hmm. But the little family made do. The couple settled baby Anthony into a drawer as a makeshift crib on their bedroom floor. And in the living room, they set up a playpen for Kaylin along with a bed for a pool. Oh, that sounds super cozy. And it sounds like they were doing the best that they could with what they had. Mm-hmm. They were trying to make it work. But definitely not an ideal situation. No. But they were still pursuing their dreams. Jason was attending school to become this dog trainer that he had always dreamed of. On the morning of August 10th, police were called to the apartment. Jason had placed a call to 911 shortly after waking up and told the dispatcher that his infant son was missing. What? Mm -hmm. He had been taken from his bedroom and he feared that a pole had eaten the baby. No. Mm -hmm. Stop it. I told you this case is going to get a little gruesome. No, it's such a well-trained dog. Yep. And how do you just think the dog ate him? There would be so much evidence that the dog had eaten him. The dog didn't like, I can't even say it, but like a dog wouldn't completely eat him. No, but when police arrived at the scene at approximately 8.50 a.m., they found Jason, Linda, and a pole in the living room along with his sleeping baby, Caitlin. The couple explained that they had settled Anthony to sleep around midnight and they had both fallen asleep deeply because of their lack of sleep over the previous few days. And... Anybody that's brought home a newborn knows that those are some pretty sleepless nights, those first couple of days. Oh, absolutely. You're in zombie mode for Mm -hmm. that first few months. Yeah. Nobody's getting much sleep. And I can't even imagine bringing a newborn home and still having an 11-month-old who would wake up. Yeah. One of my girls didn't sleep through the night till she was two. Mm -hmm. The couple had awoken the next morning to find the baby missing and blood stains on the infant's diaper and on the rug. And that's when they called the police. So there were these signs that... Something had happened to the baby. So there was like a used diaper on the floor that had blood on it? Yep. Okay. If you need to skip ahead over the details, now is a good time to do that. And if you have to, just do it. Because this one does get a little bit gruesome. No judgment if you have to fast forward. No, not at all. Fast forward if you need to. So at the scene, police found small bone fragments, which they believed to be part of a skull, and a diaper that had blood and flesh-like material smeared on it. They also found the infant's blood-soaked sleeper and a hospital wristband on the bedroom floor. During this initial investigation, police were finding things that did not sit right with them. A pole did not appear vicious or aggressive in any way. Kaylin, the older child, was completely unharmed, and she had been sleeping in the same room as him. They theorized that perhaps because the baby was on the floor and a smaller target, that that's why the dog had chosen the infant to devour. But had the dog ever displayed any violent tendencies? No. When they go back and they ask the previous owner, the owner is like, no, he's never been violent, ever. Police also found that the diaper that was found on the floor still had the tabs closed on it and was not torn in any way. And neither was the infant sleeper. It actually still had the buttons done up, all except the top couple of them. What? Mm-hmm. That does not make sense at all. Not at all. There's no way that a pole took off the diaper and the sleeper and zipped them up and put them back together. But the baby was missing. And there was blood smear all over. And this is what the family is saying the baby was wearing. Yes. Both of them are saying that the dog ate the baby. Both of them. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't you think you would hear that in the night? We'll get there. there? Okay. (laughs) At this point, police aren't even thinking that it is the dog. They're like, there's no way this dog ate this baby. It doesn't match up at all. So police remove a pole from the home and took him to the American Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which I thought was rather ironic. Yeah. Considering they're investigating him eating a human. 
to have the dog x-rayed to confirm that he did in fact eat the baby. Right, because if they're finding bone fragments, there would probably be bits of bone and stuff that would show up on the x-ray. Sadly, the x-rays did show that parts of baby Anthony were in fact inside a pole's stomach. What? Mm -hmm. So the dog did consume him. The dog did eat him. Melissa, this was the first case that got you into true crime. Uh Uh-huh. Oh my goodness. How did this not give you nightmares? It didn't actually. I don't remember ever having nightmares on it. I just found it completely fascinating. Yeah, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. I still have vivid memories of reading this newspaper article about the trial. My youngest brother was just an infant at the time, and I was enthralled with all things baby. Oh, yeah. And that's originally what caught my attention about the headline. Because the headline was about this dog who had eaten someone's baby. That's right. I remember reading the article, but not fully understanding it at first. I believed I was reading about this tragically horrible case about a loving dog accidentally killing the newborn that the family had just brought home from the hospital. Yeah, because that's what you would assume, that if it's a family dog, it would have been an accident somehow. Mm -hmm. We had always had dogs growing up. My mom bred Dobermans, and we had always had a mixed breed as a family pet. I couldn't imagine any of our family dogs ever hurting my baby brother. But I wasn't naive enough to know that it never happened. Sometimes dogs turned on their owners. My mom was always lecturing us about how to properly socialize puppies so that they grew up to be kind. So I knew the opposite was a possibility. So I wasn't totally naive in thinking that a dog couldn't be mean, but it didn't make any sense to me how a dog could hurt a helpless baby. It only made sense to me that it must have been an accident. A horrible, horrible accident. What a sad thing for this poor family, I thought. Right. I have had the same experience growing up, and we even had German Shepherds growing up. But what I find is usually a family dog is protective of a baby. Mm -hmm. It's usually the opposite. Yeah. And in any of the cases of dogs killing infants, it's usually because they're smothering them to protect them. Oh. Which is super sad, too. Oh, yeah. But it's never of a dog actually eating a baby. Oh, cannot even imagine. So this is going to take a turn because they're not going to take the dog to trial. No, the police didn't believe it was an accident or that the dog had just gone off for some unknown reason and been provoked to eat a newborn alive. Especially a highly trained dog. No, and it also didn't make any sense for the dog to do it quietly enough that he hadn't awoken the parents who were sleeping in the same room. That's what I was thinking when you were telling me this. How would the parents not hear the baby screaming? That's right. How would a dog silence the infant's horrific screams? Yeah, I know for myself as a new mom, you hear every little thing. Like your brain is programmed. Like even when you're sleeping, you're not really sleeping. You know what I mean? In a deep sleep, you are programmed to hear any little sound that your baby's going to make. Yeah, you're listening for it, right? Yeah. No matter how sleep deprived you are, you're still kind of tuning into that. And it was the question that the police had is how could any parent actually sleep through that? It just didn't make any sense at all. Does not seem possible. No. Detectives ordered that an autopsy should be performed on a pole, despite Jason's pleas to save the dog. That same evening, after a tearful goodbye from Jason, a pole was put to sleep and an autopsy was carried out. Oh, and if this is not the dog's fault, that is so sad that the dog had to be put down. Wasn't his fault at all. Oh. What they found was truly gruesome and horrific. The pathologist found no tissue fragments or bone splinters in Apollo's mouth, as you would expect if a dog had chewed and torn a baby to pieces. When the stomach contents were examined, they found three pounds and four ounces of human flesh inside. (gasps) That's half the baby. Mm -hmm. There were recognizable portions of ribs, 
spine, a right hand, both feet, and a section of a skull with light brown hair still attached. That is beyond horrific. Mm -hmm. That is one of the most evil things I have ever heard. Yeah. The sections of the infant were small, but they had remained intact. Imagine being the poor person who was doing that autopsy on the dog and finding all this stuff. It would be so sad, but when I was reading this, I found it so fascinating that the pathologist that examined these pieces was able to find the evidence that they did. Yeah. They examined each of the pieces extensively and found that there was no evidence of tooth impressions or tearing of the tissue. So it had been chopped up. Mm -hmm. Instead, the body had been cut with a sharp, smooth instrument that left clean edges. None of the soft tissue showed any signs of bleeding. Oh my goodness. So are you telling me that the dad actually cut up his son and fed it to the dog? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happened. The dismembering had occurred post-mortem. The piece of skull fragment revealed an indentation, and that fracture was believed to be from a blunt force object, and it was determined to be the cause of death. So he hit his baby with something on the head, killed him, and then dismembered him and fed him to the dog. I don't even feel like Dirtbag is a big enough title for him. What a vile piece of trash that he is. Yep. Part of me wonders if he tried to protect the dog and not have the autopsy done because he didn't want the evidence found. But honestly, from the reports, it sounds like he was just more attached to the dog than he was his own son. He probably wasn't thinking it through that this is what was going to happen. How did he think that they were not going to put the dog down, especially if he's saying this dog just ate my baby? Yeah, I don't know. Dogs get put down just for a bite. So maybe he was trying to stop the evidence Mm -hmm. from being found. Because several times he asked the police officers, well, you can just x-ray. You don't have to do an autopsy, just x-ray. And he was saying that he didn't want the autopsy done because he didn't want the dog to be put down. Right. He had spent a lot of money on him, you know. That is true. Mm Mm-hmm. But his motives for wanting the dog to stay alive are pretty questionable. It's just so bizarre to me that someone would want to kill their infant. Like you can take your baby and drop it off at any fire station. Mm -hmm. No questions asked. No charges pressed. He could have done that, but that's not what he did. Police arrested Jason late on the Friday night of August 10th. So the same day. They took him to the 104th precinct to be questioned. He was charged with two counts of second-degree murder, one for intentional murder and one for depraved indifference. Why second-degree? That should be first-degree murder. Because they always charge with a lesser count and then go more after. They don't have all the details yet. Right. And I guess they can't say that he didn't accidentally drop the baby or who knows. Mm -hmm. And then this is just a very disturbed way to cover it up. Yep. Detective J. Salpeter took over 10 hours to interrogate Jason before he would confess to murdering his six-day-old infant. Oh, the baby was only six days old? Yeah. I'm just so, like, horrified about what's happening. I'm not keeping the date straight. Yeah, he was only six days old. Oh, my goodness. The detective would later say that the only thing that convinced him to come clean was taunting Jason about having his grandmother find out about what he did to his son. Um, I think your grandma's going to find out anyways. Yep. Jason confessed both verbally and in writing a little bit at a time to waking in the middle of the night when Anthony had started to cry. He got up and went to the infant and tried to keep him quiet for fear that he was going to wake up Kaylin. As he walked with Anthony, the newborn peed all down the front of him. Enraged, he threw him to the floor and the crying stopped. What? Mm -hmm. Because of a little pee? Yep. He went over to Anthony, but he was not breathing. And instead of trying to get help, he decided to dismember his son 
and feed the pieces to his dog by leaving them right beside the dog dish. Oh my goodness. Because he was scared of getting into trouble. Mm -hmm. Wow. Can you imagine throwing a six-day-old baby? I can't imagine even throwing like a six-year-old child, let alone a six-day-old baby. Like who does that over a little pee when the baby can't even control that? I was thinking the way you put the diaper on determines if they can pee out of the diaper. Right. If you point up or point down, right? And so it was his fault or one of their faults that the baby was peeing out of the diaper. But even with girls, sometimes they still leak through or you're changing them and they have a literal poop explosion. Mm -hmm. Parenthood is messy. Or what about when your baby pukes on you? Yeah. But for whatever reason, this was like the tipping point for Jason. He lost it and literally chucked his son on the floor, causing a skull fracture. And this seems out of character. Was he ever violent with Linda or Kaylin? Linda trusted him to be around Kaylin. She never reported anything. True. So this just feels like it's come out of left field. Like, how did this happen? And he didn't have a lot of explanation for it. All he said was that he had become enraged because he got peed on and then he needed to cover it up. And he used his dog's appetite to destroy the evidence. And what a gruesome way. Like, I don't feel like a normal brain would say, oh, you need to chop up your baby and feed it to your dog. No, if you're thinking straight, you call for help, even if the baby isn't breathing. Right. Or even like I could understand more if he went and hid the baby somewhere and faked a kidnapping or something like that. Like why go to that brutality? Right. Or involve the dog at all. Yeah. Because whose brain goes that way? No, that's what I mean. That is a demented brain. Mm -hmm. Terrible. Yeah. Jason would later recant this confession. What? Don't they have it on video and writing and recorded? He says the only reason he confessed was because the detective had come in and told them that Linda had given him up, that Linda had told them the whole story, and that's why he confessed. So they had actually lied to him. But that would mean then that Linda knows. Mm -hmm. So she's a dirtbag too. I don't think she's a dirtbag, but she did know. But if you know that your husband did this and you're going to help him cover it up, I think that allows you dirtbag status. Yeah, or she's just terrified. That could be too. I shouldn't be so quick to judge. (laughs) My mind's just blown with this case. So it was believed by police that Jason had used a razor blade to dismember the body, but no weapon was ever recovered. And they thought he'd used a razor blade because the cuts on the bones were so smooth. Oh. Mm -hmm. So what about the rest of the remains? Did they ever find that? So the rest of the remains were never found, but it had been a full 24 hours after Uphold had eaten the baby, and that's what remained in his stomach. So I'm guessing that actually some was digested. Oh. I don't know that for sure, but that's my guess. Oh my goodness. Because some would have been digested just by normal gastric fluids in your stomach. Right. So there was no other body parts or pieces left. Just the few pieces on like the diaper and... Yeah, there was just smears of tissue left on the diaper. Okay. And they found the majority, like it was really only like one hand that was missing and internal organs, which internal organs are going to break down faster, right? And not be recognizable in stool. Wow. Mm -hmm. So even the amount of time that it would have taken him to feed his dog that. Mm -hmm. And for a dog to eat seven pounds is a huge amount. That's true. So disturbing, right? It really is. This is the case that I was like, this pathologist is incredible. But it is usually like for me, my first case, it is a shocking case. Mm -hmm. You know, usually these cases that get us into true crime are ones that our brains can barely comprehend. And that's what it was like when I read this article. Like, I just kept on going back to it has to be an accident. Like, there's nobody. Nobody would do this. And the article that I had read was more about the defense's side of the story in which case that they were presenting. So they were trying to present all of these arguments about, well, the dog could have ate him. He could have done this. 
because of this and this and this because of the scent being different of between the two children and he wouldn't have an attachment to this infant and maybe he was hungry because he was being trained and oftentimes trainers will use food as an incentive and so they're very regimented about the amount of food that they actually get and so maybe he was being not starved but his training regime was too intense so they had given all of these arguments about mm-hmm. why a dog could actually do this but in my mind i was like no, this doesn't happen. Mm-mm. But it did. Even those poor defense team. Like I said that before, I can't imagine trying to defend someone like this. An absolute dirtbag. I don't know how you do it over no. and over again. To even like sit with him during all those meetings, because you would have to be face to face with him mm-hmm. to compile your case. And try to actually come up with a defense. Yeah. Somebody has to, though. It is needed because mm-hmm. not everybody who's tried is guilty. No. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later, too. Oh. I threw in some bonus content. We'll Woo-hoo. see if we get there. But an actual murder weapon is never recovered. But that didn't stop the case from being prosecuted. Linda agreed to work with the police and to testify against Jason for immunity for herself. She didn't actually receive a deal or anything like that. Police never did suspect her as being an accomplice. She was never arrested, but she was afraid of anything that could be used against her character because Kaylin had been placed in the custody of child welfare the day that they arrested Jason. Oh, of course. Kaylin had shown no signs of abuse. But it was precautionary and Linda would have to fight to get back custody of her daughter. Absolutely. And so she wanted whatever information that she had, she wanted protection that it wouldn't go against her in her court case to get her daughter back. Okay. So during the six-week trial, that's when we hear about Linda's grand jury testimony about what she actually knew about Anthony's death. She had awoken after Jason had thrown her infant son to the ground and had listened as he dismembered her child, but she was too fearful of what Jason would do to her or to Kaylin, so she pretended to be asleep. <gasps> so she listened to it. Mm-hmm. She knew it was going on, but she also knew that the baby was already dead, and so now she was fearful of what was going to happen to them. He had lost his mind. Yeah. I don't know. Do you call her a dirtbag or not? That's a tricky one, because only she can say for sure. Yeah. Right? Because some people do get paralyzed with fear. Other people jump into action. Right. So it's hard. Like, I feel like I would be the type to jump into action. And so it's hard for me to relate to that, to just lay there and let him do that to your baby. Yeah. Because if she's pretending to be asleep, then that to me indicates that she didn't get up and check on the baby to make sure that he was dead. Because what if the baby was still breathing or there was still a heartbeat? From her account, she stayed in bed with her eyes closed tightly shut and tried to drown it all out. Which would be such a traumatic experience. But I would feel like if I heard the baby fall to the ground, like why would your first instinct even be like, oh, he just killed the baby? Wouldn't you think, oh, he just dropped the baby? Or maybe he was hollering angry at the same time. She never says that she actually woke up when he had thrown it, but that had already occurred. Like she woke up and he was dismembering the baby. And she saw it or just heard it? She heard it going on. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm 100% sold on that. Because I don't know that you would wake up and hear something like that and be like, oh, that's just my boyfriend cutting up our baby. (laughs) It's true. Why would you ever think that? Yeah. Why would that be your Mm -hmm. first assumption? But she's never, out of all of the investigation that was done, she's never taken into custody. She's never faces any charges. Okay. So there must be something more that they knew that wasn't reported in any of the court documents. Yeah, I'm thinking she had to have known the baby was dead. I can totally see her pretending to sleep just to make sure that her and Kaylin are safe. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that I buy that she just heard him cutting him up and, right. and knew right away. 
Well, and the other thing that's really sketchy too is that she actually goes along with Jason's stories when the police get there in the morning. Story of them both being asleep and waking to find Anthony gone. So once this vile, vile, gruesome thing that Jason has done is over, she got up out of bed and faked not knowing where the baby was. And then went along with Jason's story when he told the police like they had woken up and the baby was just missing. They don't know what happened to him. Right. Which she could have been in shock. And if they were questioning them together, she might have been fearful to tell the truth. And if you're in shock, you can be really impressionable. So it's logical that she just went along with Jason's story because that's what she was hearing. And if she didn't actually see it, did she think, oh, maybe that was the sound of the dog? Maybe. I don't know. I can't pass judgment, but it seems like there's some holes in that to me. I don't think she necessarily was a part of it, but maybe knew more than she's letting on. Right. And because her testimony has been redacted in certain places because of her custody battle, you don't actually know the full story. Right. During the trial, the jury also heard about the calm and heartless way Jason had placed a call to 911. And in a methodical voice, he told the dispatcher about Anthony being missing and how he suspected the dog had eaten him. So no emotion at all. So like he was ordering at McDonald's drive through Yep. That kind of tone. Mm-hmm. Wow. They also heard about how Jason had gone on and on making loving and protective displays towards a pole, proving that he wasn't devoid of all emotions at the time. He just didn't have any emotions for his own son. Which is so strange. No, it wasn't a disconnect with reality where you're just, you block everything out so you can't display any emotions. At the time, he was displaying emotions, but only towards the dog. And up until this point, he'd never been diagnosed with any kind of attachment disorder or some type of mental illness or... Not that any of the records show. Okay. There's just that odd relationship with the grandmother. Okay. Which, if you have some upset in your relationships between your primary caregivers when you're young, you have an attachment disorder. It could happen. Yeah. But we don't know that for sure. And it's hard to say, like, what that unusual relationship was. That's right. It may be totally harmless, Mm -hmm. even though serial killers often have an abnormal relationship with their mothers, which could extend to your grandmother. It's true. And that's because the attachment disorders are so fundamental in how we socialize. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, Jason was showing kind of abnormal emotions during this time. No emotion towards the son, but overly avert emotions towards the dog. Who was also emotional was Detective J. Salpeter, the detective that had obtained Jason's confession. He broke down on the stand in front of the grand jury when reading the confession at the start of the trial. Well, I can't even imagine what he or anybody involved in that case went through. No. This hardened police officer that had previously worked on the street crime unit and as a hostage negotiator before becoming a homicide detective and was a self-proclaimed police goon, he had been so affected by what Jason had done to Anthony that a week later, he walked away from the police force. (gasps) He quit his job. Mm -hmm. He described the case as the most horrifying episode in his entire career. Can you really blame him? I think at that point, too, I'd be like, Kim, done. People are too vile. Why would you want to be anywhere near this? Oh, it just makes me so grateful to the police forces that we do have because that is a tough job. Mm -hmm. That they go and do that again and again. Yeah, you can totally see why he would want to quit his job. But how heartbreaking for him, too. Mm -hmm. That changes his whole life. And not to mention, like, the defense team and the jury and everybody else that is. Yeah, the crime scene investigators, all of it. That is privy to all of this information. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things that you never really get a full scope of how many people are affected by Mm -hmm. this single dirtbag that did this horrific act. The defense team tried to stop the jury from viewing the evidence from an emotional side. 
which I'm not sure how you can do with a case like this. No, unless you have a heart of stone, this is an emotional case. Yeah. Every case is emotional, but when you're dealing with a six-day-old infant... Yeah, because they're completely helpless. Mm -hmm. They can't even get away from you. Yeah. They tried to sell the jury on the story that Jason's confession had been coerced by police. Detective Salpeter had falsely told Jason that Linda had told them everything and had given him up when she hadn't. But the jury didn't really care if the confession was coerced or not. No, and police are totally allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. They're allowed to lie. Yeah. Well, I'm sure the jury found it absolutely ridiculous that this dirtbag who murdered an infant was now trying to plead that he was being treated unfairly. Yeah, you were being bullied. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so sad for you. Yeah. What did you do to your son? Exactly. It wasn't fair that he threw Anthony to the floor for not being able to hold his bladder at six days old. Ugh, no. Really, no one cared about what the defense thought was fair or not. Exactly. And even without that confession, the evidence is right there. We Mm -hmm. know that the dog did not eat the baby on its own. No, the dog did not cut up the baby before he ate it. No. I am surprised, however, that the defense did not try to claim insanity or postpartum psychosis. While it is extremely rare for men, there have been documented cases where men after having a baby have entered into a psychotic state. Oh, I could totally see that Mm -hmm. because some men will even have pregnancy symptoms Mm -hmm. while their significant other is pregnant. Yeah, it's something that we assume along with postpartum depression that is something that just affects women, but it actually affects dads too. Right. I just think it more so affects women because a lot of the time that's a hormonal thing as well that can affect it, right? You're absolutely right. Hormones play a big role in it, but stress induces hormone reactions as well. Oh, for sure it does. Mm Mm-hmm. But it was never mentioned, so obviously no one at the time thought it was a viable defense. And that's no excuses being made for this dirtbag of a father. Right. But I think with something like this, we want some answers. Like, we want to know, how could you do this? And so if we knew that that's what it was, it would at least put some understanding into our brains. Because right now, this is so unfathomable that a father could do this to his newborn baby. It just seems so crazy that a human being would do this to a helpless infant. Yeah. And that's why I was so curious about like his mental health history or things like that, because our brains need something to explain this. No. And after the trial and all of his parole hearings, mental health never comes up. So it wasn't an issue, which makes this so much scarier. But you can have a temporary break in psychosis. And that's why I started thinking about postpartum psychosis and started down the rabbit hole of can men have postpartum psychosis? And Right. Not that we're trying to make an excuse, but just our brains are trying to comprehend how this could happen. Because it's uncomprehendable what the stirbag did. Yeah. Yeah. Jason was found guilty of second-degree murder and tampering with physical evidence on November 2nd, 1992, and he was sentenced to life in prison on November 24th. Good. I'm surprised he wasn't charged with, like, mutilation. That's the tampering of evidence. Okay. Of his crimes, District Attorney Richard Brown said, The acts of which the defendant has been convicted are among the most despicable and revolting imaginable, acts that have shocked even the most seasoned prosecutors. Jason is now 51 and is serving out his sentence at Greenhaven Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in Beekman, New York. He has applied for parole numerous times and has even tried to have Anthony's body exhumed to get his own evidence from it. How can the body be exhumed? Well, they had collected the pieces of the body from a pole's stomach and had it buried in Nebraska. Oh, okay. But he wanted the body exhumed so that he could have his own pathologist do investigations on the tool marks on the bones. Hmm. But all of his efforts for parole have been in vain. They have all been denied. 
As they should be. Mm -hmm. And this month, he becomes eligible for parole again, although the hearing date has not been set yet. This month? Mm -hmm. Because the anniversary of the death is coming up? Is that why? No, it just happens to be. Wow. And that's the disturbing case of Jason James Radke, the straight-up heartless, vile, and utterly despicable dirtbag of a father. Oh, yeah. He wins the title of worst father ever. Mm Mm-hmm. How terrible. Yeah. But after that disturbing case, I thought I would tell you about one good thing that came out of the case that I found down a rabbit hole while I was digging for information. Thank you. I feel like right now we need to somehow leave this on a more positive note because this was a hard one. This was dark. Yeah, it was a dark case. So the detective that quit his job because of the case, Jay Salpeter, has opened up a private investigating business and now works on cases for the wrongly convicted. Oh, for the wrongly convicted. Yeah. As he struggled to come to grips with the realities of police work and the person that he had become while doing that police work, Jay, a Bronx-born, Bayside-raised former NYPD officer, found a new calling and meaning in life. One of his well-known cases that he helped solve was for Martin Tankliff. And this is your bonus content. Ooh. Martin was 17 and just heading off to his first day of senior year on September 7, 1988, when he found both his parents brutally stabbed and bludgeoned to death in their family home. Oh, no. His mother was dead when he found her, but his father was still struggling to live, and he performed first aid while waiting for help to arrive. His father would remain in a coma for weeks, but eventually succumbed to his injuries. Oh, my goodness. How horrific at 17 to find your parents like that? Mm Mm-hmm. Despite some very obvious other suspects, police took Marty in for questioning, and after a very long session of hostile interrogation, police believed that they had gotten a confession out of Marty for murdering his parents because they made him drive an old car. What? Mm Mm-hmm. They thought that he murdered his parents because they made him drive an old car? Yep. After intense probing, the police claimed that Marty's father had woken up and told police that it was Marty who did it. After being told this, Marty admitted that maybe he didn't know what had happened. Maybe it was possible that he had blacked out and didn't remember. He did remember being upset about the car, but that was the only reason he was ever mad at his parents. And so the police took this as a confession. What? Mm -hmm. So did the father actually say that? No, the police totally lied about it. Oh, so this is another one of those cases where they're trying to get the confession. That's right. Which is what happened with Jason. Yeah. And how terrible because at 17, you're so young and impressionable. And it would be much easier, I would think, at 17 to get a false confession out of somebody. Than it would be at 19? Oh, yeah. I guess he was 19. It's interesting the parallels between the two because both detectives had used similar tactics to gain a confession. Yeah, that is interesting. But this confession, I wouldn't even call it a true confession. Like he was like, oh, my dad said that. And then he's kind of musing to himself like, Did I pass out? Do I not remember what I did? Like, what happened? I I mean, I guess it's possible that maybe I I don't know what happened. Right. I think anybody, if you were 17 and you were told that your dad said that you did it, you would question your sanity, Mm -hmm. even if you had never blacked out before. Yeah. And then he gives them this small motive that, well, I was a little bit angry at them about making me drive this old car. Oh, my goodness. That's a stretch, though. It's a huge stretch. Yeah. And Marty would have been in shock because what a traumatic experience to find his parents and it'd been this huge lengthy interrogation where people are like yelling at him and telling him he had done it and oh yeah i can only imagine and that's why there's a lot of dna evidence that's being used now to overturn previous confessions 
Yeah. We haven't really covered those on our podcast, but you can definitely find cases where that totally happens. Oh, there's whole organizations that exist just for the wrongfully convicted, like Project Innocence. Right. Which is one of the companies that worked with Martin. Yeah. I can't even imagine going about your day and then before you know it, you're in jail for a crime that you didn't commit. Mm Mm-hmm. And when that happens, the real killer is out loose. And that's why Jay does these cases. With Jason, the evidence is there. But it doesn't sound like they have that evidence in this case. Well, they do have some evidence, but they turn it to point towards Marty. Police took that omission of guilt, which really wasn't a mission of guilt, and pushed for prosecution, even though Marty refused to sign the supposed confession and pleaded to take a polygraph test. Hmm. Which they denied him, but maybe that was a good thing in the end. Because could you imagine if it had come up and said that he was guilty? Right. Or that he did lie? And they're not reliable. No, that's what I mean. So on June 28, 1990, a jury found the confession hard to overlook and convicted Marty. He was sentenced to 50 years to life in prison for killing his parents. (gasps) So he got a life term for each parent. Mm -hmm. And at 17. Mm -hmm. And if he had done it, I would be like, great. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you need. Yeah, but if he was actually innocent, I cannot even imagine yeah. how that would have felt receiving that sentence. Crazy, right? Yeah. Well, enter Jay Salpeter on the scene in 2000. He was approached by Martin and his very long list of family and friends and lawyers working pro bono on the case, all because they believed in his innocence. And it wasn't long before Jay was convinced of it too. He begins to work the case and he finds that the lack of evidence and good police work on the case is laughable. Oh, man. He just goes through and he's like, this guy was snowed. Wow. Using his investigative skills learned as an NYPD officer, he tracked down and followed the leads that led him to a man that admitted to driving the getaway car the night that he and two other men were commissioned to carry out the hit on Marty's dad. Following the man's testimony, Jay also found a pipe that he believed to be one of the suspected murder weapons in a field just around the family's home. But after 16 years in the woods, there was no usable evidence remaining on it, so it couldn't be proven for sure. But that didn't stop him from continuing with the investigation. Over the next seven years, Jay worked the case and didn't stop until he had found enough evidence and witnesses. And on December 21st, 2007, Marty's case was ordered for a retrial. Wow, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, things like this do happen where police have made up their mind who they think is guilty. And instead of looking at evidence objectively, they're looking at how can we have this evidence fit our theory on who we believe did it rather than looking at the evidence objectively to find out who did it. Yeah, they get tunnel vision. Yeah. A week later, an official investigation was open into how this crime had first been handled. And on July 22nd, 2008, All charges were officially dropped against Martin in the murders of his parents, Arlene and Seymour. After wrongly spending 17 years of his life in prison, Martin earned his law degree in 2017 and now practices as a lawyer. No way! Mm -hmm. Good for him! Because that could have went a totally different way. Yep. He spent half of his life in prison. Wrongfully convicted, he could have become so bitter about it. Oh, yeah. And even just turned into a thug being in prison Mm because prison life is not easy. Nope. Wow. Good for him. That totally speaks to his character. And how Jay didn't give up. He could have went down a super dark hole after dealing with this case with Jason, but he didn't. He turned it around and found a way to help people. It's always nice to see something good come out of a tragedy. 
And it's so interesting to follow the rabbit holes and where they lead. Oh, for sure. Because all the people that Jay have helped wouldn't have happened if this case hadn't happened. If he hadn't stopped working for the police force. Yeah. And who knew that an article that captured my attention as a child could lead to a true crime podcast? True. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That is true. Definitely. I definitely feel a lot better leaving it on a positive note. Oh, totally. So now I've given you guys a little bit of bonus content and Melissa has now given you a little bit of bonus content. Let us know if you like that. Is this something that we should do more? Yeah. Let us know if you like us going down rabbit holes. And maybe your rabbit hole this week could be figuring out how to rate and review us and giving us some feedback. Yeah, we will super appreciate anyone who actually does go and give us an honest review. And we hope that you all continue to find rabbit holes that intrigue you. And until next week. See ya. Bye. Hopefully we have no popping sounds. (laughs) No mic bumps. No trucks today. (laughs) It's true, those trucks. (laughs) Oh, wait, I bumped my mic. Yeah. All right, so now what did I need to re-say? I don't know. That was so long ago. That was like five minutes ago. (laughs) Nope, I read about it in a global... A global? A global. (laughs) Global. We are a global family. We love all our global <laughs> listeners. Cool. Uh, that one's great. There's a truck. <laughs> oh, there was just a truck. I don't know if you'll hear that one or not. Why is there so many trucks today? It's because you're recording. Oh, wait, I bought my mic. <laughs> oh, that is... Stupid truck. <laughs> he was going to Prisier. Prisier? How many things could you you do with $8,000? Right? You could hire a pool boy. (laughs) I could hire a pool boy. As I pause for this other truck that passes. Good. (laughs) Don't put that in there. (laughs) That's a loud truck. (laughs) We do need to get Melissa's shirt made that just says, I hate trucks. why does it does it happen more on my episodes or is it just because i react so much that we just notice it on my episodes i think it's more on your episodes i I need to i need to send out good vibes into the universe be like i like trucks it's okay i don't have a thing for them (laughs) yeah you're putting it out in the universe all the universe is hearing is trucks okay here you go that's right (laughs) i like trucks they're okay they don't bother me at all liar (laughs) her pants are on fire During the initial, initial? Oh, there's a truck. <laughs> I didn't take a drink. Detective, detective, detective. Who? The police and the detectives. <laughs> I gotta get back on track. How am I gonna pull this all in now, Christy? <laughs> Sorry. Why is everybody driving today? The street is not usually this busy. <laughs> it's because I'm recording. And just as and just a reminder that as our and just as a and just a reminder that Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife Caitlin likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents?
We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.